0: Welcome to How to Get on a Watchlist, the new podcast series from Encyclopedia Geopolitica. In each episode, we sit down with leading experts to talk about dangerous acts, organisations and people. We examine historical cases, as well as the risks these subjects currently pose, from assassinations and airline shoot-downs, through to kidnappings and coups. We'll examine each of these threats through the lenses of both the dangerous actors behind them and the agencies around the world seeking to stop them. In the interest of operational security,
1: certain tactical details will be omitted from these discussions. However, the cases and threats which we discuss here are very real.
0: I'm Lewis H. Passant, the founder and editor of Encyclopedia Geopolitica. I'm also a doctoral researcher at the University of Loughborough in the field of intelligence and espionage in the private sector. In my day job, I provide intelligence to corporate executives on complex geopolitical and security issues. So today we're going to be discussing a rather gruesome topic which is how to kill a journalist and our guest today is Dr Mark Grant. Mark is the head of high-risk safety and security at Sky News and he's operated in high-risk environments around the world for nearly two decades and has supported and directly managed security for the BBC and CNN. Mark holds a doctorate in security risk management with a focus on journalism security, his thesis reporting safety An assessment of risk management practices employed by news organisations operating in areas of conflict between 2009 and 2019 is the first study of its kind, allowing news organisations to learn from the most pivotal decade for journalism in modern times. Mark is also the co-founder and non-executive of My Risk Media, an app-based solution to ensure news and other organisations have direct access to vetted, qualified and experienced safety and security consultants, with the aim to create consistency of advisors across the industry. So I think really we're talking to someone today who knows more about this topic than anyone else. So that's a, a really interesting background, and thank you very much for joining us, Mark.
2: No, thank you for inviting me on the podcast. Uh, excited to
0: chat further. So I think the, the question that, that your your background really begs is, how did you get
2: into this line of work? Yes, yeah, so I think I think the reason I chose this sort of niche part of the security industry was was definitely curiosity. Prior to, to working with media security, I'd spent six years post my military service really trying to find out what I wanted to do. I sort of floated around the NGO sector, private security contractors and risk management companies. And it was in 2015 where I, I sort of had a conversation in Mogadishu, Somalia, with a, a news crew who were looking to travel to a rather remote and austere part of the country that no one would have, in the right mind, would have went to. And we started having a conversation about risk appetite, and I found that extremely fascinating, how a group of individuals who didn't come from a security background felt that they could travel to one of the most dangerous parts of the world. Uh, and that really got my ears sort of pricked up. Previous to this, I'd worked for a number of organizations when the, the risk got to a certain level either closed up shop or turned around and this was the first time in my career that i'd seen a news crew and they wanted to push it way past that red line and that was their business as usual so yeah i suppose you could say curiosity got me here
3: and mark what does the history of journalists putting themselves at risk what does that history look like are journalists today facing a totally different environment than they did let's say in the 90s or can we go back even before the 90s
2: yeah, I can take you right back, Cormac. Uh, the first thing to note is that there has always been some form of protection for uh, for journalists whenever they've operated. However, prior to 2002, the security offers very loosely through what, what's been referred to as embedded, merely military embed. Uh, and that, in short, is a host looks after a journalist stroke news crew stroke reporter and provides a set level of support, whether it be security, accommodation, Logistics, Medivac, and so forth. And that's always, always sort of been there. And the first sort of reports of embed appeared way back in the 1840s, when a number of correspondents operated alongside troops in the Mexican War. And and that's not really changed since then. And they've continued to support journalists around a number of different conflict zones, providing what is very loose arrangements and very little formal risk management structures in place. Not all unsuccessful during the First World War. Uh, no accredited correspondents were killed, and that's quite a feat in itself when you consider journalists were deployed on the front line with British forces on the Western Front, the Middle East, and through to Gallipoli. This sort of loose structure continued all the way through to the, the Vietnam War, when at the time, this was labelled the most accessible war for journalists. And uh, they sort of operated side by side by their military counterparts for extended periods, often number of months, or in some cases, years. And when they really operated alongside the military counterparts in Vietnam, they often wore the same fatigues, carried weapons, and in, in some cases actually used weapons against the Viet Cong. So it really does bode broad the question, Is this was that impartial journalism, right? Post-Vietnam, the, the US government really tried to cartel the access of journalists, and this was labelled the Vietnam Syndrome, into, in order to create future sort of influence across Across future wars, and this never just stopped with the US. If you look back to the the Falklands War, it was the first sort of large scale accredited war that journalists had to be on certain lists in order to get access to cover that conflict. So previous journalists who had maybe covered previous conflicts were not on the list because they may have, again, pissed the wrong the wrong person in government off. This continued through the Gulf War in Saudi Arabia in the build up. A lot of journalists who were accredited were kept there and drip-fed information in order to influence public perception of the war. Again, this element of control, which was sort of embedded with the protection element for journalists there. And this sort of continued all the way through to Iraq. And this was quite a pivotal moment, because this was the first time a a formal structure was put around the security for journalists. So the UK had uh, what they refer to as the Green Book, and the US had what we refer to as the Public Affairs Guidance, US Centcom. And this allowed military to cartel exactly what journalists could and couldn't do, and sort of forced journalists into signing an agreement of what they would cover and what they would not. This often came with a number of restrictions, which from an editorial perspective just wasn't appealing to journalists. So what this did is this sort of forced a number of journalists to step outside, to off this embedded structure and operate unilaterally, often at a far greater risk. This unfortunately came with a lot of a lot of casualties, including ITV uh, employee Cameron and Terry Lloyd being killed in 2003 by the US. So there has always been a, a sort of security structure to support journalists. Some people enjoyed it; some people didn't. With the embedding, only 10 percent of those embedded with front within Iraq seen frontline conflict. So it definitely did cartel editorial reasons, which again pushed people over the over the line when it came to how they were going to cover the war. And from this point, it sort of got interesting. So journalists no longer wanted to be controlled. They wanted to operate unilaterally. And since then, they have sort of moved into what I would class as the modern security apparatus of news organisations, where they are taking a lot of this on themselves, employing former military personnel, uh, putting people through certain courses before they're allowed to deploy, and really improving the competence of the journalists to cover from conflict. But yeah, to answer your question a roundabout where there always has been some form of security placed upon journalists. But recently, yeah, it's, it's definitely moved on since uh, since the embedding days. So aside
0: from the the kind of war zone reporting, what about investigative journalists? I feel like they probably lack the protection of their war zone colleagues. And by the nature of the job, they're, they're upsetting powerful people. What are the risks to... Investigative journalists looking at, let's say, organised crime or political corruption. I'm, I'm thinking of a prominent recent example, Daphne Carano-Galizia
2: in uh, Malta. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a significant risk there, right? At. I think the risk definitely sits more with the local journalists than the, the international journalist, uh, for obvious reasons. Obviously, they are operating a country where you could argue they are more, more involved and in, in touch with has going on from day to day, and there has been the question posed, what's the difference between a local journalist standard and activist. Uh, so obviously they're far, far more in touch with what they are covering in that, that area. It's very hard to manage that. I think what I would do in that case is prior to that individual actually covering an investigation, there has to be a lot, a lot of risk management done in this case. So you would look at what they're covering, what the risks to that individual are, what actual measures are around that individual to limit their exposure. And just set off set from the right foot forward. I think technology has definitely not helped us. Got a lot of journalists who do everything on their mobile phone these days, right? And so security, information sharing, people being hacked. Is, we've seen it with the Pegasus software. It's very, very easy for the information which you think is secure to get into their own hands. So there is a lot of risk when you are looking at investigations. There are measures you can take. Again, training. I always say it, training, right? You can sit down with a journalist, ask them how they're going to manage their sources, how they're going to manage themselves, what they're going to look for. Proactively, as part of our team, we can have things in place. So if there are physical risks detected, we can move them from, from the current location. We can put measure, surveillance measures in place if need be, just to provide that additional level of support. And obviously, there's a number of cyber teams out there who can support and do proactive monitoring Offer of our staff if, if they so feel they need that to make sure if there are any direct threats, whether it be from governments and other sources, we can hopefully get on top of that and stay on top of that and have triggers in place. But if we feel the investigation is moving to a point where there's significant staff threat or individual threat, we can put measures to, to move out there. But it is a growing problem. Technology certainly has advanced the, the risks to those who are covering investigations, especially anti-corruption investigations against
3: their home countries. And generally, Mark? across the board with journalists across this series that we've been recording how to get on a watch list we're often talking about the victims or the assets that are intentionally targeted by the threat actors but with journalists what's the mix between journalists being targeted uh, let's say because they're seen as valuable targets so threat actors seeking them out maybe to kidnap them or to do them harm to use them as propaganda tools, for example. What's the mix of that versus journalists just getting caught up in the mix of high risk?
2: Yeah, so I think it's a bit of both. I think uh, there has been a pivotal switch in journalists being targeted. If you look back to the late 90s, uh, I'm sure everyone can remember the interview with CNN and Osama bin Laden after he tried to file the, the Twin I think I think the interview was in the late 90s. But the fact that you had the access with a terrorist group who were trying to kill a number of Americans demonstrates that actually back in the day, outside of one or two outlier cases, journalists were given an, an, an element of protection. I think you could argue that that was brought around by the need of the journalist at that time. So back then there was no social media. You could argue terrorist groups maybe needed media to allow them to get their side of the story across as a, as a recruitment tool in times and just share their message with the world. So I think there was some element of protection there. Uh, the fact that back in the day, even in conflict zones, journalists having a blue vest with press written on it and the press pass, you'd argue that, that they were sort of not targeted by either side. I think that sort of has changed in the sort of mid-2011, to th- sort of 2011, 2012, uh, especially with the, the rise of ISIS and other, other threat actors. We've seen it with... Uh, James Foley, John Cantil, and other journalists who were actively targeted because they were journalists. I feel they were sort of targeted because ultimately uh, journalists will obviously report more on their own, be targeted than they will for, say, an NGO. If you look at David Haynes, there's far more coverage on journalists who were targeted rather than other NGOs and other networks. So it it does breed to that understanding where, you know, they, they will get more attention, more media presence. The fact that they're no longer needed to again, get the message across because a lot of the recruitment campaigns, their own videos are being done and the messages are put around social media. There's no need to have the journalist as previously used to help share that propaganda message. Is all done uh, in-house with these organisations. So there has been a, a massive, a massive pivotal switch in the last sort of 10 years. And to, to put it into context, direct target of journalists actually reduced the, the coverage of, of ISIS, especially the rise of ISIS. I can't remember who said it, but they're like, we can deal with the bombs and bullets, but we can't deal with the risk of our staff being kidnapped. And I think that is a, is a, is a true statement where, you know, there's something very inherently visceral about people being kidnapped and the risk at that poses. And the higher risk cases we've seen, sort of 2013, 14 and 15, uh, definitely helps cement that.
0: So you, the phrase you used there was, you know, we can't tolerate this risk for our staff. But that really begs a question: you know, given the use, the increasing use of of stringers and freelancers by international news organisations, especially due to the changing financial nature of of the journalistic world, are, are reporters more vulnerable these days? Especially these types of reporters, given that they may lack the support and potentially, you know, big big
2: insurance packages of a of a larger organisation. Yeah, yeah. So this was a big part of my thesis looking at what I coined non-traditional journalists. So that is looking at local local producers, local freelancers, and, and anyone who do, doesn't come from an international news organization itself. Uh, I think the thing to break it down, and to answer your initial question, yes, they are at more risk. Uh, 94%, I think it was the CPG in 2019 stated that local journalists are 94% more likely to be killed or injured simply by carrying the work in relation to their international counterparts. But if you want to break it down, we can sort of break it down to local and international journalists, right? So from a local level, why would you use a local journalist? One, local knowledge, right? They understand they can get to the heart of the story, so that's a huge advantage for a news organization. I think these days we can all agree that nobody wants to see a a middle-aged, a middle-class white man on the news at 10, in Kenya, talking about Kenyan problems, we want to see local context to get to the heart of the story. So there have been a, a significant reason to use local journalists over international correspondence that hasn't always been based on cost, although you could argue it's significantly cheaper in some, some environments to use people who live there and work there. However, on the flip side of that, it's not always in the best interest. It does pose a significantly higher risk, uh, and that's What I sort of coined is sort of journalism risk apathy uh, for local correspondents. This is seen where there could be a a level of risk inertia. These individuals are based in these environments, high-risk environments, for an extended period of time. So over time, they become desensitized to the risks that they face. There could be an overconfidence where they're very well connected in the local environment and there's some sort of protection in that, you know, I know the governor of this area, I'm totally fine. But ultimately, the risks are there. And over-familiarity and complacency is it, something which we've seen time and time again, uh, which can increase the risk to, to local journalists. And with the international sort of correspondent, I think you can argue their risks are lower. They parachute in, they'll do a story for maybe two, three, four days, and then out again. They've not got the, the knowledge and the connections in country, so they're not at the risk, as we spoke about earlier, about uh, being targeted by government. And if you've got uh, an international news team in your country... You could argue that certain governments will want to keep an eye on them. They'll be monitored by security services, and the last thing they want is anything to happen to an international team. So again, they're at lesser risk because of those those factors. But while while you could argue that that local local journalists and non traditional journalists do have a lack of support, I think more can be done by engagement by news organisations. Right? I think in 2015, the most international news organisations signed up to what what's called the 2015 Freelance Safety Principles, which outlines how you should manage your local staff in relation to your international staff, which basically says it's the same level of duty of care. You must provide adequate and commensurate training based on the support that they give you. It's exactly the same for buying material. You have to make sure that no one put themselves in the harm's way if you are acquiring material from somebody who is who's not on your, on your books. So there are things in place. The challenge is, is how you physically implement that. It's very hard for international news organisations to implement the same level of training that you offer here in the UK than you would in, say, sub-Saharan Africa. There isn't the facilities. There's issues with visas trying to get people across to certain areas to get the training. And there's obviously, like you mentioned earlier, costs involved to get people out there. But more can be done. I think engagement from early on and investment in local resources has been done across industry. And we've seen that over the last 10 years but again, more can be done. From a, a local journalist's perspective, I think they can engage more. They don't engage nearly enough with the risk assessment process because of the factors of risk inertia, complacency and uh, overconfidence. Uh, they sometimes do not take the process as serious as an international journalist would because they feel, and from here, the risks are lower. But more can be done from our perspective, from a risk management to get engagement by local journalists in the process there's obviously barriers with language you know or barriers with culture which need to be built into risk management frameworks to ensure that gaps aren't created because of biases that we bring to the table as an international organization so yeah there's a lot that can be done they are at more risk but it is getting better the, the the research showed that more organizations are taking this seriously but there are still critical gaps that that need to be closed
3: and Mark, in, in your experience, what are the things that actually, um, let's say, most commonly put the life of a journalist at risk? So we're talking about war zones. I'm thinking of soldiers manning the barricades, letting bullets fly, maybe not necessarily targeting that journalist. But I'm also thinking political risk, journalists getting kidnapped, getting executed while in, being in captivity. I'm also thinking of just accidents that can happen in war zones, like road traffic accidents. The, the sheer chaos that they'll be surrounded or, uh, surrounded by. What's the thing, if you can name one or two things, that are most responsible for putting their lives at, at risk? I, I
2: think you hit the nail on the head there, Cormac, when you mentioned about road traffic accidents. That kills more journalists than anything else across the world. And if you're asked the two things which cause more deaths, I would say complacency, not through any fault of their own, but because you're operating in these environments for long period of time. It's difficult, it can be very, very challenging. And the second thing I would say that what I've coined is a competitor risk pendulum, where certain organisations uh, will decide what their own risk tolerances are based on their own internal processes, but those may change based on their competitors' actions. So while well, this cannot necessarily be stopped, I think, acknowledging it. Uh, so, for example, uh, you may have a team who's moved up to a point and went, okay, we are comfortable that we can gather from here safely, we can do the story. We're not comfortable that if we move forward of this point, that we will be able to do it and assure the risk and safety of, of our teams. All of a sudden, two other news organisations who are, may decide, you know what, I can do that. We can move forward. They move forward, and all of a sudden, news organisation A and B say, they've done it, we can do it. Now, while I'm not saying that is right or wrong, I think acknowledging why you're doing that, understanding the risk and what mitigations you have in place and taking that beat would, would potentially save lives. So we've seen that in, in, in Mosul, we've seen it in Syria. I'm sure it's been happening across Ukraine as well. So I do think complacency uh, with, the news, with the news crews who have operated in environments for a long time, it's a big risk and like I think I say the competitive risk pendulum where risk appetite and tolerance changes based on competitors' actions.
0: So I think you've laid out an environment there where it's there's clearly a lot of danger and, and a lot of need to protect journalists. So after the break, we'll, we'll talk some more about that, about how we keep journalists safe while engaged in these kind of high-risk activities.
1: You have been listening to How to Get on a Watchlist, the new podcast series from Encyclopedia Geopolitica. If you like this show, don't forget to check out our other content at Encyclopedia Geopolitica, which you can find by going to howtogetonawatchlist.com, where you can find our analysis on various geopolitical issues, as well as reading lists covering topics like those discussed in the podcast. Please also consider subscribing to the podcast on your streaming platform of choice, as well as rating us five stars if you enjoyed the discussion.
0: So in this part of the show, we're going to discuss how to keep journalists safe from these kind of risks. So the obvious question is, how do you keep journalists safe, especially in war zones? You know, How how do you go about negotiating access to a war zone for a journalist? Or perhaps how do you negotiate talking to a, an extremist group without putting yourself at risk?
2: Yes, I think there's a, a couple of questions in that. I think the first thing is how do you keep journalists safe in a war zone? And for me, it, if you if your, your start point is how do you keep them safe in a war zone, you're already behind the curve. What we do is we try to make sure as soon as we bring someone on board that we start from that point forward training them and making sure they are competent to operate in that environment. That doesn't mean to say that they're not competent when they come here, but we need to make sure that they've got the right level of training, expertise, and they have the right team around them when they deploy to these environments. Now, as you can imagine, there's a wide range of experiences of of young, old across the industry, especially those who have you argue battle hardened with your uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria's. And then you've got the new the new school coming through who are are relatively inexperienced and maybe in their first conflict. So we try to make sure that they've all got the same level of training, but we build team selection based on that. We also have a sort of robust risk management framework in place where you're looking at it from a very holistic point of view and not just throwing people in, in, that, in that environment without considering everything from, from logistics all the way through to crisis management. You raised a the point there about uh, local knowledge. I think that is extremely critical, having good relationships, good local producers, fixers on the ground who can share information of what is going on. You've always got that sort of pulse to the ground where allows me and my team to make better informed decisions when deploying teams to these environments. I suppose the next thing past sort of training and, and initial deployment is how what we can give journalists to keep themselves safe. The first thing is obviously... Not the first thing; it should be the last thing. Actually, is PPE. So we make sure they're equipped well based on their environment. So we have different levels of, of ballistic vests depending on what the threats are. So, for example, in Ukraine, we would probably issue level four, but for some uh, South American countries, it may be level three. So we base the PPE around the task itself and make sure that they're well kitted out based on the current threats uh, that they may face. The other the other thing is communication, right? You can't if you cannot communicate in a crisis, you can't do anything. So the has to be redundancy in that. We can train a journalists the best way they can, but if they can't communicate and share what they're doing and pass information back to the team, then it, it becomes completely irrelevant. So we give multiple forms of communication, the ability to raise alarms, to communicate with us, maybe no GSM, 3, 4, 5G coverage, to make sure they're well-equipped. The other thing we do is look at the task itself. If we feel there's maybe a case where it's a kinetic environment. The team are going to be extremely focused in on what their task is. Each team member, say the, the camera operator is looking down the lens, the producers getting the story squared away, the correspondent is practicing lines. We will often send a security advisor with that team. And that's for a number of reasons. One, situational awareness. We need someone looking out when they're looking in. The second thing is because of the threat level and someone who may be there just to help manage logistics, understand the dynamics of, of a conflict based on their experiences and just provide that extra set of eyes and ears who can focus on what is going around them rather than the actual editorial side of the task. But something which is quite is, is overlooked a lot in, in media security is the, the medical aspect. I'd say more often than not, I will deploy a security advisor with the team simply to act as a team medic to allow the team to push forward and be in remote areas. One of the most challenging tasks I've had in the last few years is, strangely, operating in Madagascar, which sounds absolutely lovely, but we were in the remote parts and there was no medical support for up to, I think it was 24 hours, if anything went wrong. So we have to go on and provide that support in remote areas when deployed. Another thing to note as well is when on the ground, absolutely fantastic. Even if nothing goes wrong, there should be a closed-down process to get lessons learned from news organisations, news crews on the ground rather. It could be something simple like issues with vehicles, with drivers, with fixers, and if we're not gathering that information and sharing it back in the risk management cycle at the end, you could argue we're not doing our job effectively. So the the retention of knowledge, uh, the sharing of information, and gathering lessons learned from the most benign tasks will help inform and keep journalists safe on future tasks.
3: And what what role do those journalists play in feeding the intelligence that you use to protect them? Right, So I, I guess, unlike many other disciplines, the person you're trying to protect is often the best intelligence source. So do you have a very preemptive way of going into, uh, before sending a journalist into high risk, and while they're there, are they actively playing a part of some kind of intelligence cycle that the corporate security team is then putting into place?
2: Yeah, I think I think this is the, the key difference with media security and other forms of security, right? Uh, it's engagement over compliance. For me, I want to engage with a producer, corresponding cameraman, whoever it is, prior to going on the ground so we can gather that information, speak to their connections, speak to the fixer on the ground. If I start saying we are going to a war zone, you need to provide me A B C D, I ain't gonna get anything. You're right, they are a very, very good source of information and having that link with the producer who it normally is or the local producer on the ground will help feed into the sort of planning cycle. And we can then corroborate that with, again, other available information, open source, closed source, whatever you want to, whatever is available at that time. But definitely there's a a huge collaborative part there where it's not simply the security manager as is in the corporate world saying, this is what you should do and what you shouldn't do. It's very much collaborative to get to a point where, you are looking at okay what are the risks how can we mitigate those but more importantly what is the level of risk acceptance that the team on the ground are willing to take but also the organization and that can only be done by engagement rather than compliance
0: i'm thinking here about the post pegasus world you know we we found out in the last year or so that the the nso groups pegasus spyware had been used by numerous governments to spy on journalists Uh, around the world how how common is this kind of thing how common is it for governments to target journalists that are perhaps investigating them and is that something you you can protect against or is that really just too big
2: a risk I I think it'd be very naive to think it's not happening right I think from what a journalist has the information the sources the connections even if I'm not doing an investigation that is extremely valuable information to host nations state actors and non-state actors so I think having robust cyber frameworks around your teams and proactive monitoring and good report around that is definitely very, very valuable. Can you protect against everything? Of course not. I think one of the biggest, the biggest challenges within, but not just within media security and use security, I think it's an in industry as a whole. Technology is moving so quickly. It's very, very hard to remain abreast of what you need to do to keep yourself safe. And when you add the factor of five into that about journalists looking after sources, how can they continue to keep sources safe, keep that anonymity and ensure that they are not putting people at harm's way? It's very, very challenging. Uh, it's something which as part of my research which came out was, I think it was something two thirds of the journalists that we spoke to did not feel comfortable with the information security support that, that they get from news organisations across across the industry. Now, I like to think since I, started, since I finished research in 2020, that that is improving. It is a gap. It's something which we are working tirelessly with our corporate security partners to change. We are working tirelessly with other organizations such as the International Youth Safety Institute to work on best practices and working in a closed network across the industry to share practices within other security professionals. But you're right, it is a huge risk. It's probably one of the greatest risks we're going to face in the next five to ten years. And it's only going to get harder to mitigate and combat.
3: So Mark, we've been talking a lot about the higher risk stuff and I guess we're making the separation between the investigative journalists and those deployed to war zones. But wh- how do we how do we protect journalists in those more benign environments where the very investigation that they're doing is the thing that's putting them ri- at risk? And I'm I'm thinking about journalists that, you know, investigating criminal gangs like drug smuggling gangs, let's say here in Europe.
2: Yeah. Is, is is a huge risk but again I take it back to the, the basic level of 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 risk management and risk assessment right? When they go on to do that task, we make sure that all journalists so this is this is pretty much standard across industry. There is a, a level of training that most journalists will get before they operate in anything which could be classed as a, a hostile or challenging environment and and within that training they would they would be briefed on on how to follow the risk management frameworks and what threats they have. I think what, what I've done in, in the current organisation, previous organisations, is having a, an open channel. So when it comes to the planning phase, we can look at it and look at the best case and worst case scenario. Ultimately, journalists know if they're going to be covering a story which is looking at government corruption. They know where they're going to be targeted. They know what the likelihood and impact that could be. So we just put it on a scale and go, OK, best case, what's it going to look like? Worst case, what's it going to look like? And what can we do to, to mitigate those risks? I think it's having a, a contingency mm-hmm. plan is having clear understanding of what triggers would allow us to get involved in and in, 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 in pull journalists out or pause what they're doing. It, it, it is it is a challenge. I'd say it's even more challenging than working in a hostile environment, right, because bombs and bullets you can see in, in certain investigative journalists who, when they carry out their work, it may be months, weeks, or even years after it's, it's been released that they get targeted. I think this is where the cyber team really come into their own as well, because as we know, there's a lot of online threats which... Permeate a physical attack, so I do think there's a, a a correlation I'm not saying every time, but by having sort of overarching frameworks, both physical and cyber, will definitely allow us to flag if there are any concerns around investigative pieces either before, during or after the task is is taking place not not an easy one, but again, training is key training, understanding risk frameworks, putting triggers in place, having an open communication dialogue throughout. And providing that reassurance to teams but like everything journalism you cannot say there will not be an instant you cannot say there are no risks if there was no risks it wouldn't be interest it wouldn't be a story and you wouldn't want to gather it so it's understanding level of risk that's there and and, and and deciding are you willing to take that potential risk or is it too great for the organization or the individual
0: Something you, you said there really prompted a question for me, which is, you know, this idea of social media threats to journalists. And I, I got thinking about the idea of political polarisation. Is that something that's changing the risks, especially as we're seeing, you know, various media ecosystems kind of bubble off into their own polarised environments, and journalism becomes more of an us versus them thing for, for certain extremist fringes. Is that something that's changing the game?
2: A hundred percent, right? I think. I think in a, a previous organization, uh, I had, had a producer who was extremely experienced. She probably operated in every single conflict zone you could think of. Some really, really punchy stuff. And she was covering the, the Brexit protests in London. And she came back to me and she said, look, I do not feel comfortable here. So I think I think the sort of polarization uh, in the political sphere has definitely created this, this challenge for journalism where if you're trying to cover it, depending on what the protest is, could be a greater risk than conflict zones. We have tried to mitigate that the best we can by making sure journalists are on public order courses. We have UK backwatches for, for, for protests, but again, the risk is there. It's, it's even more challenging when it's on your doorstep, right? Uh, we've seen the uh, the protests in the UK, protests in the States, where the do internal violence. We've seen the insurrection on the 6th of July. Uh, these are things which, 10 years ago, you'd be saying, I don't need to send security. We don't need to consider this. So yeah, the, the, the rise of social media, the the polarization of, of political actors is definitely create greater risks to news organizations and to management right I think the sort of flip of a switch you could be in central London covering a nice peaceful protest and two minutes later it could be it could be carnage it could be like you're anywhere else in a, in a, in a more dangerous environment uh, that than, than some some conflict zone so yeah it's definitely something which we are seeing more of it's something we are trying to mitigate the best we can across industry by providing training by providing equipment and again monitoring through intelligence platforms is definitely something which could be a discipline to keep a a journalist safe and
3: not. One lesson I'm definitely taking away from this conversation is the importance of training for the journalists themselves and I guess for the teams that support them particularly going into high-risk areas. So what, what does that training look like? What does a journalist get? And I guess I'm asking as well is it does it get very tailored? Like, does a journalist going into a high-risk conflict zone in Ukraine get the same training as a journalist going into conflict zone, zone in Afghanistan? Is there a difference between what they get? Is there a difference then between what an investigative journalist might get versus those going into the war zone? Do you rely on specialists for this training? Do you have to use the journalists themselves? Because I guess often they're the most experienced
2: I think if you look back in the history of of training, the sort of early training course in the sort of late 90s was pretty much uh, a bunch of ex-military chaps like myself going in and and waxing lyrical about what you've done in service. Now, that has come on leaps and bounds since then. And there is a sort of industry-wide standard, which I'm sure your listeners will know about, Hostile environments Awareness Training, or HIFA, Hostile Environment First Aid Training, which is deemed, is seen as, as mandatory across industry for anyone who's likely to put their staff in harm's way. Now, that's not just international staff, that's local staff. Anyone who's working for you will generally get the same thing. Now, although it's seen as mandatory by about 75% of the industry, only 25% of of managers have stated that they would stop teams deploying if all members never had HEFA. So although it's seen as mandatory, people will still deploy without it, which is quite a challenge in itself. Regarding the types of training... The HEFA course is a five-day course, not four or five days, and it's a a very broad brush. That is to ensure that journalists are competent to a level where they can operate in these zones. Now, you'd be very naive to think that as soon as you've done that course, you can jump on a plane and go to Donbass and and be in back mood and covering that without additional support. And that is why we try to manage the experience level of teams with that training as well. So we never send four people straight off the bat, without any experience in covering that. So I think that that supplements the training. Regarding specialist training, I think Ukraine's a prime example. And speaking to my peers across industry, I would say most news organisations have put in place additional trainings to support this conflict. So if you were to ask me three years ago, was I really concerned about the Russian weaponry and the the distance off a, a grad rocket system about not Not interested in me. We're in Iraq, we're in Afghanistan, Syria. Yeah, that's, that's my concern. Because that's changed, we've had to put supplementary training on to advise and, and, and provide that level of competence to teams who are deploying. So it is quite a, a flexible model where everyone must have the bare minimum, but there are additional trainings put in place depending on what the story is. And you can take it away from, from conflict zones, right? You can take it away and look at things like wildfires. You could argue that's a significant risk to use teams. And that happens in the States. It happens. It's happened in Europe this year. Making sure journalists are aware of how to cover that in the safest possible way. Investigations, if you're doing secret filming. I I ask any listeners to put a camera on someone and try and watch them walk around the room when they're trying to secret film. It's very difficult. So a lot of training needs to happen with that as well. So they do not look out of place if they are in a marketplace somewhere and trying to record. So a lot of individual training which is bespoke to the task. Does it always happen? Of course not. Is it budget restricted? Of course it is. But I would say over the last decade, or since 2009 anyway, there has been this awareness by risk owners, basically heads of news gathering, uh, senior leadership teams, that they've got a duty to care. And ultimately, if they're putting people in harm's way, it's them who will be liable if anything happens. So there's a far more awareness at that level and higher across news organisations that we should only be deploying people to these environments when they are trained, when they are competent, but also making sure that competence is assessed. And I don't mean physically assessed, but having the ability for people to reach out to my team, having the ability to reach out to other members of the team and go, actually, I'm not comfortable with this. I'm not comfortable with this level of risk because ultimately we need to make sure that we're not putting people in harm's way and applying pressure with do things that they don't want to do. So long way saying training has improved. It is very bespoke. There are gaps. And like we mentioned before, cyber is one of those gaps. But I think it is, it is improving. And I think Ukraine has definitely demonstrated that across industry, news leadership and security teams are taking this seriously and bespoken it based on the evolving threats.
0: And that brings us on really nicely to, to the final question from me, which is, you know, the, there's a lot of risk out there. It's clearly a very, very dangerous environment. You know,
2: what keeps someone like you up at night when you think about the threats to journalists? I think for me, I touched on it earlier, which is the competitor risk pendulum, I think is individuals back sitting in London, managing risk, uh, building risk frameworks. We can put things in place to understand the tolerance of a particular news crew, and obviously that changes from news crew to news crew. We can put frameworks and mitigation in place to protect that team based on the existing threats. We can have triggers in place and say, okay, we're comfortable with this. But the realities are, if competitors do switch their risk appetite, the story is there, the appetite is there, then whatever we put in place may not be enough. We may move forward and we're taking, it's not undue risk, it's risk to get the editorial story, which that's why risk owners make those decisions. But for me, it's when we operate in places such as Ukraine in the early days, it's operating in Syria in sort of 2018, when you've got conflict zones which are so kinetic, conflict zones which are ever-evolving, sometimes hourly, not not daily, and you've got this this sort of competitor environment, which is very challenging. And all it takes is for one competitor to move to get that story, and the dominoes will fall. So that's what keeps me awake at night. Is I can do whatever I can, but ultimately, it's a journalism, and there's always an element of risk. It's a challenging uh, environment to work in, uh, both from a physical perspective, but also a mental perspective. But yeah, it, it's definitely what keeps me awake some nights when I've got lots of teams on the ground.
3: And Mark, what what have we missed? What questions should we be asking someone like you? Oh, that that's the that's the million-dollar question, right? I think it's not really a question,
2: it's more of a, an observation and something which I think the industry can learn a lot. I think the fact that, that my thesis was the first piece of work which was carried out on risk management practice across the industry when you could argue that this is probably one of the top three high-risk roles that anyone can do in the world. The fact that you put people in harm's way deliberately but there's no studies done into how you can protect them better. Until so this piece is, it's unreal to think that's not happened. When you compare it to other similar industries, such as humanitarians, right? There's so swath of 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 information, of studies, of risk frameworks. There's every aspect of the risk assessment framework has been looked at in minute detail, and there's a lot of support for news organisations. The media security industry is really exp- is learned through experiential learning. That's that's what it is. There's there's nothing in place which has really been put there because it's been a detailed study. It's been done through experiential learning, which is not necessarily bad, but when you're marking your own homework, sometimes you should take a back seat and go, right, how can we improve this? What could we be doing better? Are we getting the best out of security advisors? Are we learning lessons? Is the engagement with the risk assessment process there? Is the training up to standards? Now, if you're marking your own homework and, and, and basically saying, we think we are safe, and it's necessary. It's not necessarily the best best approach. So, I think for me, it's it's how we can take it forward, how we can use the expertise which has significantly grown in the last two decades, both in security and safety, but also in news management, and how we can better build a framework and engage, collaborate across the industry to close the gaps which which are constantly highlighted through through after action reviews, rather than doing it prior to incidents taking place. So, yeah i'd say that's that's the one thing i would i would like to see more of and i'm sure we'll get there
0: so dr mark grant thank you very much for joining us you've been listening to how to get on a Watchlist. list in today's episode we've been discussing how to kill a journalist with dr mark Grant. our producer for this episode was edwin tran and our researcher was alex smith thank you very much for joining us encyclopedia geopolitica
1: is also now on patreon for people who would like to contribute to the production of our podcast articles and reading lists for those who want access to our special patron perks as well as the satisfaction of supporting our work head over to www.patreon.com slash encyclopedia geopolitica thank you your support is greatly appreciated